0: Let me again wish you a good morning and a Merry Christmas. It is a joy to worship with you all this morning and to celebrate the birth of our Savior together. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. You can also find those verses in the bulletin that we have there on the back table. For those of you who have been with us here for the last few weeks, you know that we have been looking at the servant songs of Isaiah all of which prophesied about Jesus Christ. Now, our passage today from Philippians takes that idea of Jesus coming as a servant, the servant of the Lord, and directly connects it to Jesus' birth, his incarnation, which is when he took on flesh. So Isaiah was looking forward to the coming servant of the Lord. He was prophesying about this. But in Philippians, the Apostle Paul looks back at the servant, Jesus Christ, who came one Christmas morning 2,000 years ago. Therefore, we're going to look at this text this Christmas Eve and ponder what it means that Jesus came to us in the form of a servant. So please follow along as I read, starting in Philippians chapter 2. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy make my joy complete, by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we come today and we ask that you would help us to behold wondrous things from your word. Father, the truth is there is no more nothing more wondrous to behold than your Son, Jesus Christ who came and took on flesh to dwell among us. And so, Father, we pray this morning that as we turn to your word, that you would help us to behold him more. Father, we pray that you would help us to humble ourselves under his word, that you would form within us by your word the mind and the attitude of Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the the missionary Charles Thomas Studd, better known as C.T. Studd, once famously said this, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. The life of C.T. Studd showed that he truly believed that statement. He was born to a wealthy and upper class British family. He attended the, the finest schools growing up and he eventually went to Cambridge, one of the the best and finest universities in the entire world. On top of that, he was maybe the best and most famous cricket player in England as a young man. He had a promising future ahead of him, but he gave up his promising future, at least in the world's eyes, to become a missionary. He served as a missionary in China, and then in India, and then for about 20 years in Africa. He gave up his comfortable, upper-class life, and he even gave up his worldly riches. He even forsook and gave away his father's inheritance, uh, all for the sake of Jesus. Uh, C.T. Studd is an example of one who did not first consider his own interests. He considered the, the millions of people who needed to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. But what would lead him to do this? What would lead him to not consider his own interest, to to give up all this and become a missionary? Brothers and sisters, I think we can say it was the example of his Savior, Jesus Christ. As we'll see from our text today, Jesus is the ultimate example of one who considered the interest of others above his own. As we just read, he came in the form of a servant. He came in the form of a servant by taking on the likeness of man, by taking on human flesh. He gave up the riches and glory of heaven to come to earth. Those are the truths that we celebrate each Christmas. Jesus humbled himself and came to earth in order to save us from our sins. So this Christmas Eve, we are going to consider the humility of Jesus and what his humility means for me and for you. The main idea of our passage this morning, and therefore this sermon, is this. Follow Jesus' example of humility. It's simple, follow Jesus' example of humility. I have two points to help us consider that idea this morning. The first is your humility. We'll find that in verses 1 through 4. And then the second is Jesus' humility. We'll find that in verses 5 through 11. So first, your humility. Oh, in verse 1 of our text, the Apostle Paul essentially asked the church in Philippi, the Philippian church, a number of questions. They're not formed as questions, but that's essentially what he's doing. He asks, is there any encouragement in Christ? Have you been encouraged in Christ? Uh, the obvious answer is yes. Is there any consolation or comfort from love? Yes. Is there any fellowship with the spirit? Yes. Is there any affection and mercy? Well, yes. Uh, One scholar wrote that in verse one, Paul was building a case leading to an inevitable conclusion. If I say to my child, did I buy your clothes? Yes, he would respond. Did I wash your clothes? Yes. Did I dry your clothes? Yes then it should not be too much to ask for you to fold your clothes. Uh, In other words, verse 1 serves as something of the foundation of what follows. If these things are true, if you have been encouraged and comforted by Christ and His love, if you have experienced Jesus' mercy, if you have fellowship with the Spirit and in the Spirit, well, then what then what should you do? Look at verse 2. The answer is to pursue unity. Paul exhorts the Philippian church to pursue unity with one another. He so loved the Philippians that he would be overjoyed. It would be his great joy if they were of the same mind and shared the same love and were united in one spirit and one purpose. Let's look back for a moment at Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Philippians 1, 27, Paul writes this. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, what is the evidence that we are living a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? At least one evidence is our love for one another and our unity with one another. John 13, 35. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. But we can't forget verse 1. Christian. Christian. The reason that you are to pursue unity is because of what you have received. Christians are called to pursue unity because they have been united together by the blood of Jesus Christ, because they have been given the same Spirit. They are to love because they have received Christ's love, they are to show affection and mercy because they have received affection and mercy from Christ. Church, the the foundation of the Bible's commands, the foundation of all the Bible's commands is always what you have first received in Jesus. The foundation of all the commands in the Bible are what you have first received in Jesus. So church, let me ask you those same questions that Paul just asked the Philippians. Have you received any encouragement in Christ? Have you received any consolation of love? Have you experienced affection and mercy? Well, then live your life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pursue love, pursue unity. But the question is how? Well, how are you to pursue love and unity? Well, we find the answers in verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Well, church, the path to unity is through humility. As one author put it, the true obstacle to unity is not the presence of legitimate differences of opinion but rather self-centeredness. This is why Paul says to do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. A selfish ambition is the desire to get for yourself. It's the desire to prioritize your own gain and your own good. If you are marked by selfish ambition, you will pursue what you want, even if it comes at the expense of others. If you're acting out of selfish ambition, there may be times that you serve others, but you will only be doing so for what you can get in return. A good reputation? Maybe so someone owes you a favor in the future? Maybe you think that by doing that good thing, you're going to earn bonus points with the Lord. In the United States, politicians are sometimes referred to as public servants because they are supposed to consider the interests of the people who have elected them into their their office and not primarily their own interests. They're elected to a position of service. And yet, selfish ambition often rears its ugly head. Uh, Some are tempted by corruption and use their positions to make themselves rich. Others do everything they can to hold on to their position and the power and the prestige that comes with their position, even if it comes at the expense of those that they are supposed to serve. A selfish ambition is a constant temptation. But conceit is a closely related temptation. To be conceited is to be excessively proud. It is to believe that you deserve to have others serve you and your interests are most important. Your first thought is not what I can do for others, but whether others are doing enough for me. A Conceit is the very opposite of considering others as more important than yourself. In James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, James writes this. What is the source of wars and fights among you? In other words, what is the source of disunity? What is the source of wars and fights among you? Do they not come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. The source of disunity, the source of fights and conflicts, both within the church and without, it's the desires of our hearts. It's the desires of the human heart. It's the desires of your heart. We desire our own interests too strongly. We idolize them. Sometimes even good things, we just desire too much. We idolize them. And so we lash out in anger and in bitterness when we do not get our way. Well, Tim Keller, he writes this in his short book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. I actually have that available in the library in the back table if you want. But Tim Keller writes this in that, in that book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. The ego which he means our pride, the ego, or our pride, often hurts. That is because it has something terribly wrong with it. Something unbelievably wrong with it. It is always drawing attention to itself. It does so every single day. It is always making us think about how we look and how we are treated. People sometimes say their feelings are hurt. But our feelings cannot be hurt. It is the ego that hurts. Our feelings are fine. It is my ego or my pride that hurts." In other words, uh, Tim Keller's point there is that we are all conceited. To one degree or another, we are all conceited. We constantly think about ourselves, not others. We constantly think about what what others think of us. And so Tim Keller's solution to the problem is the same as the Apostle Paul's He'll pursue humility. He goes on to write this. The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. The essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself Less. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself. So his point is that humility is not about thinking lower of ourselves, though that may be necessary in some cases too. No, but to think of ourselves less, that we are not always the first thing on our minds, and therefore to think of others more. Well, church, take a moment to ask yourself what this would look like in your own life. What would it look like for you to consider the interests of others as more important than yours? What would it look like to consider other people as more important than yourself? Husbands and wives, what would this look like in your relationship to one another? Husbands, it would certainly mean that you should not think that your wife exists to serve you. That you exist to serve her. Wives, it would certainly mean about not complaining about the ways that you serve your family. Kids, what does this look like in your relationship to your brother or your sister? Friends, what would this look like in your workplace and in your relationship with your manager or co-workers? Is your number one desire to make your life easier or their life easier? And church, we certainly need to ask what this looks like for the life of our church. After all, Paul is writing these words to the Philippian church. They are addressed to a church. Friends, there are more than 50 one another commands in the New Testament. More than 50 commands, more than 50 ways in which God commands us to consider our fellow brothers and sisters. To name just a few, we're called to love One another, not love ourselves. We're called to honor one another, to put others first. We're called to build one another up and encourage one another. We're called to pray for one another, not just pray for ourselves and our needs. We're called to forgive one another, which means bearing the cost of another sin against us without insisting on our own rights. We're called to be patient with one another, which means not demanding our own way or insisting that people behave and act in all the ways that we want. We're to show hospitality to one another, which means we're to to give to one another, to be generous to one another, which actually be generous to one another is another one of the one another commands. We're to comfort one another. We're to serve one another. The, The list just goes on and on. Brothers and sisters, those are specific ways in which we are to consider the interests of others above our own. And if you're a member of, of Emanuel Church, if you're a member of this church, these are the commitments that you have made to one another in our church covenant. Friends, at its core, church membership is a commitment to consider the interests of others above your own. It is a commitment to seek the spiritual good of your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ to whom you're united in the same local church. This is how we are to live with one another. Brothers and sisters, how are you doing in this call? How are you doing in considering the interest of your fellow brothers and sisters? And friends, if you've been visiting with us at Emmanuel for a long period of time but have never joined the church, let me encourage you to join Do not just exist on the outside or the the edges of the church. Commit to serving and loving the people of the church. But church, if we truly want to know what it looks like to consider the interest of others above our own, we must not just look to the one and other commands of Scripture. That's a good place to look. But we must not just look to the one and other commands of Scripture, but to Jesus himself. Jesus is the supreme example of what it looks like to consider the interests of others above our own. And therefore, Paul holds up Jesus as the model for what this looks like in our own lives. That does take us to the second point of the sermon and the second half of our passage. Jesus' humility. Look with me again at verses 5 through 8. Friends, let's follow the Apostle Paul's thought process here for a moment. Paul exhorted the Philippians to unity based on what they had received from Jesus. He then explained that the path to unity is through humility. And now he explains how we are to pursue humility. We clothe ourselves with humility as we adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus and as we follow his example. In fact, we are commanded to do this. Verse 5 is not a suggestion, like one thing among many that you might try if you want to be more humble. No, verse 5 is a command. It's a command from the Lord to you. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. Christian, you are to follow the example of Jesus. Now, Jesus is more than an example of humility. But not less. Jesus is more than an example of humility. He is the one who makes our humility possible. In fact, some other translations of verse 5 says to adopt the mind, to adopt the attitude of Jesus, or to adopt this mind or this attitude among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, if you are a Christian, you can follow Jesus' example of humility Because he has renewed your mind. Because he has given you a new heart. Because he has given you a new nature. Because he has given you his spirit, which empowers you to walk in humility. But though all these things are true in your life, Christian, though Jesus has transformed you, walking in humility does not come automatically, it takes work. We must constantly, we must constantly look to the example of Jesus. We must work to adopt the attitude of Jesus. But friends, the good news is that we have a great example to look to. There has been and never will be a greater example of humility than Jesus Christ. Friends, the the message of Christmas, the reason that I am preaching this passage this Christmas Eve, is because Christmas is a message of humility. And just think for a moment what happened at Christmas. The God of all glory came to earth and took on human flesh. Jesus, the eternal son of God, came to earth as a helpless baby. Though Jesus is king of kings and lord of lords and sheikh of Shakes, he came not to be served, but to serve And to give his life as a ransom for many. Brothers and sisters, that is the story of Christmas. And that is the example of humility that Paul points to in verses 6 through 8. Because it is meditating on these truths. Setting our our mind on these truths. That should drive you and me to humility as well. So let's take a, a few moments to consider these verses together. look first at verse 6, Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be exploited. And now this verse has sometimes caused people confusion. What does it mean that Jesus existed in the form of God and did not count equality with God as something to be exploited? Now, does that mean Jesus is not God or that he is not equal with God? There have been some who have falsely taught that in the history of the church. But friends, hear this clearly. That is not what this verse is teaching at all. Over and over and over again, the Bible affirms the full deity of Jesus, that he is fully God, one with the Father. We just read one of those passages a moment ago, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. God has appointed him, Jesus, heir of all things, and made the universe through him. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. In other words, Jesus shares the exact nature of God. Same nature, he is fully God, one with the Father, very God of very God, light from light. Jesus made the entire universe. Friends, who can create the universe but God himself? He is concern, currently sustaining the universe, all things, by the word of his power. The reason that our world doesn't fly apart, that you continue living, is because Jesus is currently sustaining all things by his power. He is fully God. And so we should then ask well, what is verse 6 teaching? What's well, teaching that Jesus did not use his exalted position as the eternal Son of God to his advantage? When he came to earth, he set it aside for the sake of others. Second Corinthians eight, nine, for, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich for your sake, he became poor so that by his poverty, you might become rich. But friends, humans, humans often use their positions to their advantage. A manager at work might use their position to make sure that they get the off day that that they want, even if it comes at the expense of of those who are working for them. But not Jesus. He did not take advantage of his position, but humbled himself and came to serve. He considered the interests of sinful mankind. He considered the interest of, of you and me above his own. And verses 7 and 8 are really just an explanation of what it means that Jesus did not account equality with God as something to be exploited. They're the explanation of verse 6. Instead of doing that, instead of exploiting his position for his own gain, what did Jesus do instead? He emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. Again, that phrase that Jesus emptied himself has sometimes caused confusion for people. Some have wrongly taught that this means Jesus somehow laid aside his divine nature when he came to earth. That when he came to earth, he became something less than God for his time on earth. They have wrongly taught that Jesus was less than fully God then while he walked the earth. But again, that is not what this verse is teaching at all. In fact, verse 7 tells us exactly what it means that Jesus emptied himself when he came to earth. Jesus remained fully God while on earth, but he voluntarily emptied himself of some of his divine privileges and something of his divine glory when he came to earth. He did not come to earth in his full glory and splendor, but in the form of a servant instead. He came as a man. He did not come... Falsely as a man, he really took on human flesh, but his glory was veiled or shielded behind that human flesh. So the doctor that, that recently performed Seth's surgery for his broken arm told us that he stopped wearing his medical scrubs, his, his medical uniform, when he left work and would go out with his wife after work. He would change into regular clothes if he was going to go to work to, to meet her. The reason he did this is because if he goes shopping with his wife in his medical scrubs, people think he is the house help or the housemaid because house helpers often wear that same type of clothes here in the UAE. So people would assume that he's not a doctor, but he is the live-in house help. They assume that he is something of a servant when he wears his scrubs. People have even yelled at him because they thought that he was not helping his wife enough with the groceries and the other tasks when they were out. Well, he did not want to be thought of in that way. He did not want to be thought of as a servant. And so he would change his clothes before he left the office to go out with his wife. And brothers and sisters, Jesus did the opposite. He remained fully God while on earth. But he laid aside his divine glory and took on the form of a servant by taking on human flesh. He remained fully God but he also became fully man. He is the God-man, both God and man. And he is God and man now forevermore. I remember how much more profound Jesus' humility became to me after the birth of Adeline, our, our firstborn child. I marveled just at how helpless she was. And we had to do everything for her. Feed her, put her to bed, change diapers, and that, that is how Jesus chose to come to earth. I mean, it's remarkable. The great I am, the creator of all things, the one who was even then sustaining all things by his word, came to earth as a helpless baby. Friends, take some time this Christmas to meditate and, and think on the profound humility of Jesus Christ. And friends, the truth is that Jesus' birth was not the end of his humility. Look at verse 8. He emptied himself even further. He humbled himself even further. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. I mean, what greater example is there of someone who considered the interests of others above his own? Jesus humbled himself and came to earth. And then he suffered the cruelty and the suffering and the pain and the shame of dying on a cross. And he didn't do it for a people who loved him. He didn't do it because we were so great. No, he did it for a people who had rebelled against him, who had turned their back on him, who had despised him and rejected him. Friends, he did it for sinners like you and me. I mean, what love, what humility. Pastor R.G. Lee described the deep descent and humility of Jesus with these beautiful words. From the heights of glory to the depths of shame, from the wonders of heaven to the wickedness of earth, from exaltation to humiliation, from the throne to the tree, from dignity to debasement, from worship to wrath, from the halls of heaven to the nails of earth, from coronation to the curse, from the glory place to the gory place. In Bethlehem, humility and glory in their extremes were joined. Born in a stable, cradled in a cattle trough, wrapped in swaddling clothes of poverty. No room for him who made all rooms. No place for him who made and knows all places. Oh, deep humiliation of the creator, born of a creature, woman. But in his descent was the dawn of mercy. Because we we cannot ascend to him, he descends to us. Let me quote that last line again. In his descent was the dawn of mercy. Because we cannot ascend to him, he descends to us. Friends, the message of Christmas is that you cannot earn a place with God on your own. There is no amount of serving others that you can do to earn a place with God. No matter how hard you try to consider the interest of others above your own, you will fall short. You cannot ascend to God. Salvation does not come by your own efforts. Therefore, in his grace and in his mercy, Jesus humbled himself and he descended to you instead. He came for you. He was born for you. He lived for you. He died for you. He was raised for you. Brothers and sisters, that is the message of Christmas. And salvation, therefore, comes by humbling yourself and receiving His grace. It comes by repenting of your sins and placing your faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Salvation is not Jesus plus anything else. It is Jesus alone. Salvation comes by humbling yourself before the one who humbled himself for you. Friends, the truth is that you can only truly adopt the same mind and the same attitude of Jesus Christ if you first humble yourself before him and place your faith in him. But those who do that, those who humble themselves, repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ, those who have been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ are then called to live as he lived. Christian, you're, adu- you're commanded to adopt Jesus's attitude of humility, his attitude of grace. You're called to do this because of what he has done for you. It is the foundation of the command. You can do this by considering his example. Someone once asked Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the well-known English pastor of the mid-1900s, how he could become humble. Oh, this is how Dr. Jones responded to him. A friend was asking me the other day, how can I be humble? He felt there was pride in him and he wanted to know how to get rid of it. He seemed to think that I had some patent remedy and could tell him, do this, that, and the other, and you will be humble. I said, I have no method or technique. I cannot even tell you to get down on your knees and believe in prayer because I know you will soon be proud of that. There's only one way to be humble, and that is to look into the face of Jesus Christ. You cannot be anything else when you see Him. That is the only way. Humility is not something you can create within yourself. Rather, you look at Him. You realize who He is and what He has done, and you are humbled. A Church, when you truly grasp the humility of Jesus Christ, When you truly see Jesus for who he is, when you truly see the humility of Jesus, there is no room for boasting. If this is what Jesus has done for you, how can you have any pride or conceit? We certainly have nothing to boast about when it comes to our salvation. It was all of grace. We are only saved because Jesus humbled himself and descended to us. And we have no room for conceit, thinking that we are, are more deserving of others having served us than we are to, to serve others. We have no room for conceit. How could we think that when Jesus himself considered our interest above his own? Now friends, this is an especially important point for anyone in a position of leadership to hear. God has not given you your position of leadership so that others can serve you. No, in God's economy, leaders are called to serve. Leadership is a position of service and sacrifice. Leaders, whether they be pastors or managers or anything in between, are not to use others for their own personal gain, but to protect others and to serve others, to seek the good and the growth of others. Friends, I know that if we're honest, this is a type of leadership that is not often practiced in this country. It's not a type of leadership that is often practiced in most places of the world. So, friends, if you find yourself in a position of leadership, be different. Adopt the attitude of Jesus. And brothers and sisters, if you want to adopt the same attitude of Jesus towards others, you first have to see yourself in relationship to Jesus. Who is he? Who are you? And yet he considered your interests above his own. If Jesus considered you, you can consider others. If Jesus gave up the glory of heaven to come to earth, you can give up the pursuit of your own glory and your own good. Friends, this is not something that you can do by your own strength, but only by his strength working in you. You must depend on him and depend on his spirit as you look to him. The church that uh, we used to attend, me and my family used to attend in the United States, had a a deacon, a, a deacon who was specifically responsible for caring for church members in distress. That was his job as a deacon. If a church member was sick or in financial need, he would spend time talking with them and praying with them and trying to find out how the church might serve them and meet their needs. And therefore, he was often finding himself talking with the poorest and neediest members of the church. It was just a natural part of his role as a deacon. But before retiring, this deacon had been a man of great power and influence. He had been a general in the United States Army, commanding thousands of troops. After retiring from the army or leaving the army, he had a very influential position in the government, helping to, to set high-level government policy for the whole nation. But yet this man knew Christ, and therefore he did not think of himself as too important to serve the poorest and neediest people of the church. He did not even pursue a position of of upper leadership, but a position of of service as a deacon. Brothers and sisters, that is what it looks like to adopt the attitude of Jesus. And So brothers and sisters, as you reflect on Jesus' birth this Christmas, Ask yourself, are you looking to be served or are you looking to serve? In what ways might you need to repent of an attitude of selfish ambition or conceit? What opportunities do you have to humble yourself and consider the interests of others above your own? Kids, I know you are probably looking forward to receiving Christmas presents tomorrow or whenever you receive them. I was the same way as a kid. I still look forward to receiving Christmas presents, but remember the Bible says that it is more blessed to give than to receive. Serving others is not a terrible chore. Giving to others is not a terrible burden. God has designed it to be a joy and a delight. It is our sinful flesh that tells us that we should not do this, that this is hard that this is going to be unpleasant. No, God has designed it to be a joy and delight. So kids, enjoy the presents that you receive. Take joy in others giving to you. But take joy in giving as well. Take joy in serving. That is what it looks like to adopt the attitude of Jesus. Jesus. But friends, for as much as you should reflect on Jesus's humility over Christmas, you should also see that it is not the end of the story. Look again with me at verse nine. For this reason, because Jesus humbled himself, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice that it is Jesus' humility that has now led to his exaltation. Because Jesus humbled himself, because he he perfectly and completely carried out the mission of redemption given to him by the Father. Because he came in obedience, he has been exalted and been given the name that is above every name. Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on the cross. But God has exalted him by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand, where Jesus is now, even now, ruling and reigning over all things. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 13 and 14, which we read a few moments ago. But this man, Jesus, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. Friends, the right hand of God is the place of honor and exaltation, And Jesus has been raised there and sits there until all of his enemies are placed under his feet. He crushed the head of Satan at the cross. But Satan's head will be completely crushed when Jesus returns in glory. On Christmas 2,000 years ago, Jesus came as a humble servant. But friends, he will one day return as a conquering and glorious king. He will return with trumpet sound and with his angels in order to judge the living and the dead. And on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As one writer put it, some willingly bow now, some willingly bow before Jesus now by joyful choice, but some will be forced to bow in defeat, openly acknowledging the rightful rule of the exalted Christ on the day he returns. Friends, make no mistake. Every knee will bow. Those knees can bow willingly now or be forced to bow later. Friends, the choice is yours. Bow before Jesus now and receive salvation. Or bow in defeat later when he returns in judgment and receive condemnation. The choice is yours. Humble yourself now before the King of kings and the Lord of lords who is sitting at the right hand of the Father. Or be humbled by him later when he returns in glory. Friends, Jesus is the greatest example of humility that has ever been or ever will be. But Jesus is more than just an example of humility. Jesus is Lord, and you must bow if you will find salvation in Him. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, and one day every knee will bow before Him. Friends, He calls you to bow before Him now, to follow Him in obedience, to obey His commands, to adopt the attitude of His humility in your relationship to one another. Friends, God is a God of reversals. As we thought about last week, he loves to reverse human expectations and human wisdom. And the good news of the gospel, is all those who humble themselves in faith before Jesus now, all who willingly bow their knees before Jesus now, will one day be exalted. But those who refuse him in stubborn pride will be humbled and judged on the day he returns in glory. And so, friends, if you are here and not a Christian, I want to urge you to humble yourselves now. Confess that you are a sinner and unworthy of God's grace. Confess that you cannot save yourself, but that you needed Jesus to humble himself to come and save you. Trust in him and trust in him wholly. Trust fully in his life and his death and his resurrection for your salvation. Turn from your sins and follow him in humble obedience. Friends, that's what it looks like to confess that he is Lord. And there is no other way of salvation. But for you, Christian, Jesus' exaltation and glory is an encouragement for you to adopt the same attitude of Jesus. If you humbly submit yourself to Jesus now, if you humbly serve others now, you will one day be exalted. You can consider others as more important than yourself because your eternal future is secure in Jesus. You do not have to look out for number one. You do not have to look out for yourself because Jesus humbled himself for you. He's adopted you into his family. He has looked out for you. So as C.T. Studd said, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Well, brothers and sisters, what is done for Christ are the things that will last. And those things that will last are those things that were done for others in the name of Christ. As Jesus said, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. This may not be the way of the world, but it is the way of Jesus. It may not be the attitude of the world, but it is the attitude of Jesus. And so, church, this Christmas, reflect on the humility of Jesus. Adopt the attitude of Jesus. Let's pray.